Howdy, and welcome to a special October bonus episode of Third Time's a Charm, the show that takes a look at the third installment of a franchise. This is episode 10, Leatherface, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, part 3. I'm your host, Mike, and today I welcome back Dan of the Dead Cologne to cut, slice, and saw deep into the Texas Chainsaw franchise, just in time for Halloween. The 45-year history of Texas Chainsaw Massacre has spawned eight movies, and Leatherface Sawyer himself has joined the mighty pantheon of legendary movie maniacs. Join us as we encounter the friendly Ken Foray, the deranged Vigo Mortensen, and a whole slew of new Sawyer family members. This episode ventures into uncharted territory in that this is the first movie on the show without a novelization. That's right, no third time's a book today, but hey, this is all part of hashtag season one forever. I still get to read a little bit and keep an ear out for hashtag record club towards the end of the show. Book club will rear its ugly head again soon, don't you worry. But for now, sit back, try to relax, and remember... There's roadkill all over Texas. Hello, Dan of the Dead Cologne. <laughs> What's up, Mike? Welcome back to Third Time's a Charm. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. So this is going to be a special bonus Halloween episode for Third Time's a Charm, and you and I are going to get into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise here as we talk about Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 from 1990, directed by Jeff Burr. And before we get into the movie and the production and everything, I had just a, a couple quick questions for you. Have you ever handled a chainsaw before? I have, briefly. I'm not very good at it, but yes, I have. And what was the occasion? Were you helping to chop down a tree? Were you cutting up a stump? Were you uh, murdering somebody? <laughs> <laughs> I think I was helping my dad remove a tree stump from the yard. Yeah, I myself have never handled a chainsaw. Not yet. I hope to get to that experience soon. And I, I hope it doesn't give me like chainsaw rage where I get addicted to it. It's a little bit of a rush, and I gotta say, the first time you hold one in your hands, it's difficult to not look like Dennis Hopper when he's testing out chainsaws. Oh yeah, from part two, we should mention. Yes, yes. All my knowledge of chainsaws comes from this horror series, not from like lumberjack life or any kind of realistic thing. <laughs> I wanted to start off the show with that question. Have you ever been to Texas? I've never been to Texas, but it's always been a place on my bucket list, so to speak. Particularly, I, I want to visit the um, the gas station from the original Texas Chainsaw movie. That would be item on my list. So yeah, that would be the one thing I would really want to see. You know, I obviously want to visit Austin, but yeah, I've never been. Yeah, me neither. I, I have some relatives there now, like recently over the past couple years, they've been out there. So there's, I guess there's opportunity to get there, but nothing against Texas, but like, I just never had the draw to, uh, to go there. Obviously Austin, I'd love to go visit there one day, but yeah, no, me neither. But you know, those are two major things relating to this franchise. So I just think right off the bat, wanted to know if either of us have had experienced those two parts of this. Sure. I mean, the closest I've gotten is a drive through, like I drove across country a few years ago, but that was across 80. So it was sort of, it was the Northern route, which took me through a lot of the Midwest 
obviously, but yeah, I didn't get any of that sort of nothing, nothing resembling Texas. That's for sure. Just a lot of corn. I want to bring up your road trip maybe a little bit later when we start getting into the film discussion, because that is how this movie starts you know it starts on a road trip so you know that's another experience relating to the movie one that you have had we'll get a little into that if you um came across any hitchhikers (laughs) any one-eyed weirdos at the gas station any of that kind of stuff sure before we start talking about the movie proper, this series has a lot of history to it. There's been eight movies right now. Yeah, and, that, and that's including some reboots. Right. So there's four in the original series, and then it was rebooted, you know, by like Michael Bay's Platinum Dooms brand and bringing horror back. And right. it was kind of a big resurgence at the time. And, and there's four films in that series as well. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Texas Chainsaw 3D was a follow-up to the original franchise. That was my understanding of it, was that it wasn't included in the reboot sort of franchise. It fits more in line with the original four. Oh, so it's more like part five. Yeah, that was my understanding of it. But I mean, I could totally be wrong about that. This show is going to cover Texas Chainsaw 3D because it is officially part three of the reboot series. And that is the only one of those four new ones that I had actually seen. So so I've seen one through four and then 3D. Yeah, that's my, that's my history with the franchise as well. I haven't seen any of the Michael Bay produced films and I didn't see the new the new Leatherface, which by all accounts was pretty mediocre to to horrible. But um, yeah, so I've seen all four of the originals plus Texas Chainsaw 3D, wherever that fits into the canon. So I'm, I'm on par with you. Yeah, what I thought was kind of interesting is that there's another movie they titled Leatherface, but it wasn't the third one. It was like a, it's the new part four, not the new part three. Before we get any further, why don't you go a little bit deeper into your history with this franchise? Like you said, I know which movies you have seen, but you know how long ago did you discover this series? Well, I think like I mentioned on the last episode for Halloween 3, that college was sort of the genesis for my obsession with horror. So of the many films that I acquired at that time, Texas Chainsaw Massacre was one of them. I, I kind of tried to find all the essentials, right? So I, I bought a copy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, watched that, scared the shit out of me. And then it took me a long time to really come around to the sequels. And I think it's because they weren't as readily available. Now, thanks to companies like Scream Factory, you know, you, you can get this stuff now in high definition, which is great. But I think they just weren't as readily available for me at the time. Also, I was kind of wary of sequels. I didn't realize at the time how incredible some horror sequels can be. So it took me a while to really come around to the idea of watching the rest of the series. And then once I did, I just I bought part two, three, and four, and just watched all four movies all in one go. Just just to kind of put that original one in context with everything else that came after it. And man, this, this as a franchise, this has some peaks and valleys, and it, it really goes all over the place. It's kind of like stitched together, not unlike Leatherface's mask, but... I, I enjoy all of them. Uh, let me just say that up front. But they definitely do vary. It's a very dynamic franchise in terms of its overall quality. That's for sure. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. At least these first four movies, to me, like is very unique in that there isn't a lot of like continuity like you get sort of with like a Jason or a Freddy movie like they feel all sort of unique in a way unto their self right so like it's kind of funny my history with this franchise goes way back to when I was like six or so six or five or six 
I had a friend whose brother was older and really into horror and comics, and he had the classic Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 poster on his bedroom wall. Oh, yeah, that's a great poster. You know, it's sort of like the Breakfast uh-huh. Club homage thing, which I did not get for many, many years. <laughs> um, and so, like, I'd always known it was, like, out there. It was a movie. It was a horror movie. It was, like, an intense one. And it really wasn't until really late in high school where I saw for the first time the original. At some point in the 90s, I remember watching part four on HBO because I think it was dumped on HBO. Like, it went straight to video or something. And that's the one with Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey. Right. There's a lot of pedigree in these movies. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Then, I, when I first saw the first movie, I was kind of shocked. Like, I had never really experienced that visceral of a horror movie before. I had not seen Last House on the Left, mm-hmm. which I would also sort of put in the ranks of this, the Wes Craven one. Yeah, and I had only seen that once. That movie put me off quite a bit. But I was just like enamored by the style of that original one. It felt almost like one of the family members was shooting it from the bushes or something. Like there's just such a raw documentary sort of feel to it. It feels almost like kind of found footage in a way just for how dirty it is. I don't know. It just really affected me on like a primal level. For sure. Yeah. And then when I saw the second one, and I know the second one has like its haters and everything, but I think that's my favorite one. It's almost like this pop art piece of color and comedy and it's like almost like a like watching a cartoon right yeah I, I think toby hooper definitely traveled to the other end of the spectrum when he made texas chainsaw 2 and my understanding of texas chainsaw 2 is that it's the movie that toby hooper originally wanted to make but because of budgetary limitations you know because that that first movie is is like a student film in a lot of ways he didn't have the resources available to him to make it like that so now that he's an established director a horror director in 1986. He had done Texas Chainsaw, obviously. He had done uh, Salem's Lot. And then he had Poltergeist under his belt. Now he's got money. The studio wants wants him to keep making more, more of his stuff. And so now he gets to make Texas Chainsaw 2 the way he originally had wanted to make uh, that original film. So I love the the contrast of the two. It's like they don't even exist in the same world, even though a lot of the same a lot of the same characters are in there, same actors. So yeah, I love I love watching those two back to back because of how incredibly different they are stylistically. You hit on something that I really love about this series that I feel hampers a lot of other kinds of series is that there isn't really a continuity. It's almost like the Mad Max series where we have the same cast of characters or actors playing different characters or whatever you have like these same characters but like they're in a like a different episode the lack of continuity i think for me helps right i do take it as like a folktale sure and so every time you retell that story 10 20 30 years later you're gonna put the modern twist on it sure and that's actually a really good way to think about it i never thought of it in that context but when you think of it as sort of like um you imagine someone is telling this story about what happened because i mean they all start with the sort of like little crawl about you know, these rumors of things that may or may not have happened, so on and so forth, that if you think of it as a, as a folktale, that allows for a lot more flexibility, a lot more variations in, in how the characters are presented. And it's sort of, if you're not a fan of the lack of continuity, it could help change your perspective, because that definitely would make it, make it work a little better overall. I enjoy that comparison, for sure. You just don't get bogged down in trapped into choices and stuff, you know what I mean? Like, you can just go anywhere you want. If you didn't get a chance to do something, Something with Leatherface last time, you can do it in the next movie. 
Right. And it actually makes me like Leatherface a little bit more now that I'm thinking about it in that context. Because there's a there's a, a bit at the end of Texas Chainsaw 2 where, you know, it just kind of makes part three almost a physical impossibility. But if you think about it as, you know, uh, just somebody's account of it, it could be that what we're seeing is, is totally subjective and is not actually what went on. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny, like in preparation, I don't require my guests to do this and I don't do it every time, but I actually had the chance to watch one, two and three. And <laughs> I had forgotten just how killed Leatherface got at the end of the second movie. Yes. Like, it's pretty remarkable the taste of his own medicine that he gets. Well, I don't think that Leatherface as a character was as iconic to Toby Hooper as he became to everybody else. So I, so I think that he was a lot more willing to just kill him off at the end, you know, or so we can assume because we don't ever actually see it. But I mean, the man has a chainsaw impaled through him, a live chainsaw, and then he gets blown up, you know, so how he could survive that to to show up in part three makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But then I think, you know, when New Line took control of the franchise, they thought, all right, well, whatever happened in part two, we're just going to ignore that because we need Leatherface. We need this iconic character because that's what people want. You know, but I think Toby Hooper just wasn't as reverent to Leatherface as the rest of us are. Yeah, and or this series to a degree, I feel like maybe he felt I had done what I could, what I really needed to get out of my system. Exactly. And it's interesting you mentioned New Line because they did acquire this franchise from Canon. Yes. It was in the hands of Canon Films. So I give, you know, that was a very sort of like narrow margin of time where you could actually make a good movie and get it released properly under the Canon banner. So good for Toby Hooper and all that. But New Line, definitely, you know, they had Freddy. They were the house that Freddy built and they were looking for more monsters to franchise. And that's why this is called Leatherface and not Texas Chainsaw Massacre because they're the ones that saw it and was like, no, like he's the creature. He's the Jason. He's the Michael Myers. He's the one we're going to market this movie as. And this is actually intended to be like a soft reboot sort of quasi sequel to the first one and like almost completely ignoring the second one. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that I've covered a movie that's done this. But I think this will come up a lot with part threes. Like a lot in part threes where they decide to sort of go back to basics. In this one, they sort of felt like, okay, you know, let's try and just update the first one mm -hmm. and see how it plays. Sure. Let's talk quickly about the fact that there's three cuts of this movie. Right. Only two are, are available. Yeah, so there's the R-rated cut, the unrated or X-rated cut that the MPAA rejected, and then there's the original work print cut. So that's the one floating around the internet on the dark web if you really need to see, you know, like the extra bits and stuff. Does it exist? Can, can people watch it? I'm not sure if it's a real work print or if they just re if they inserted the deleted footage from the DVD because there's like a 10 minute documentary about the deleted scenes and they basically just play all the deleted scenes while like Greg Nicotero and uh, the director are like talking over them. So I don't know if it's just cobbled together by a fan or if it's like um, something that, you know, was released, you know, in secret or what. Oh, sure. So there's no actual uh, proof that it is the legitimate work print. It's just, it's, it sounds like it's likely more something somebody stitched together to, to make it the most complete version of the film. Yes, much like Leatherface's mask. <laughs> yes. Let's get into a little about Leatherface before the actual film. How do you feel about him in regards to like the pantheon of horror monsters or compared to his peers? Like, where do you feel like he falls in line with like Freddy, Jason? 
Pinhead, all these guys that are out here? Um, I think he is the least interesting as a character, as a standalone character. Uh, he certainly has a, has a great look. I find him very aesthetically pleasing in that regard. But if I were to just isolate him and just think of him as, as, a, as a horror character, I find that he works much better as a member of the Sawyer family than he does as a single solitary monster. Because he's really not that interesting. He is interesting in the first two in that he is sort of the uh, the abused, um, mentally challenged younger brother who really, if it wasn't for his size and his strength, that he might not really be all that useful to the Sawyer family. You know, like he's the guy who goes out and does the dirty work so that the rest of them can put up the front that they have to hide all of their secret cannibalism and, and, and whatnot. Freddy Krueger is charismatic. Jason Voorhees has a pretty fun backstory. And I find that I enjoy him overall a little more than I do Leatherface. You know, and then the rest of the of the iconic sort of 80s and 90s horror monsters, I think, are just more fun to watch on screen as, as characters. Leatherface just, just looks really cool, I think. I would agree with that for the most part. Like, I feel like what you're saying, like, I don't think he could carry it on his own because he's just, like, intensity. Like, he's just a maniac running through the woods with a giant chainsaw. Like, it's, you know, it's very primal and stuff. But, and, and... That's what most stalker villains are like. Like, even Michael Myers, he's a much slower, methodical type of killer, but it's still the shape. Like, he's still just like a primal fear kind of thing. Right. I love his dynamic with the rest of the family. Yes. That, for me, is the... Those are the character moments. Like, that's where it really comes to life. I definitely agree the first two explore it more but this one has some really nice moments alone with Leatherface sort of towards the end of the movie where where he's working on his speaking spell yes. and, and all that kind of thing like he's looking in the mirror um, I mean the movie starts with the opening credits is him stitching his Leatherface together I think I read somewhere that you know it was it was New Line's first Texas Chainsaw movie and they owned A Nightmare on Elm Street so I guess they wanted to have some sort of visual continuity with Freddy Krueger, you know, putting together his glove. So I think that was intentional. Like, I kind of like that, though. Like, that lets me know, or at least, I mean, it's not necessarily turned out to be the fact, but it lets me know, like, what their focus is. Their focus is going to be on this character. You know, it's called Leatherface. It's starting with him making his mask. So when the movie starts, like, I'm, I'm excited about that. Mm -hmm. Interesting thing, in part one, I don't think he has a name. He's just Junior. Okay, I, I didn't catch that when I was watching it again. He's junior in this movie as well. He's also, they, they refer to him as Bubba in part two and Leatherface. He calls him Leatherface and he's like, says it to him. He's like, Leatherface, Leatherface. I could be wrong about the first one. I didn't get a chance to rewatch that one uh, before before this podcast. I did rewatch part two. So I could be wrong in that they refer to him as Junior in the first one, but they, they have to refer to him as something. And I, and I can't think, I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure it's Junior. It's so crazy in that movie, too, at the end when they're all together, like, yelling at each other and the girl's just, like, screaming maniacally for, like, 30 minutes and they're all trying to talk over her. So, like, it, it's excusable not to catch anyone's name in that first movie whatsoever. Yeah. I actually didn't catch everyone's name in this movie. So, like, that's something else that we can get to. Yeah, I don't know that they – I think they're credited as certain 
they, like they have names for the credit purposes, but I don't recall a whole lot of actual uh, using their names to address that. I know that Tex is referred to as Tex, obviously, but I told you, call me Tex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he says it out loud. But there's a, there's Tinker, the guy with the claw hand, who I don't I don't know that they ever refer to him as Tinker. I think that's just his credit. So yeah, I think they <laughs> they definitely um, missed some opportunities to introduce this cast of characters. So okay, so listen, this is a bit of a sidebar, but Dan, I know you're you're a big wrestling fan, right? Yes. Now. Does Leatherface remind you of anyone in particular? Yeah, I mean, he, he does resemble McFoley, Mankind, a little bit, for sure. And, 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 and particularly in this one, in, in part three, I, I get more McFoley from him. Have you read any of his books? Do you know for certain if he took this character and sort of like used it in that way? Because to me, it's about as close as you can get to sort of cleaning up the Leatherface character and presenting it for children is to like put up, because his mask is made of leather, you know, and it looks exactly like Junior's and he's a big sort of hulking dude and and he's an extreme wrestler. So like he's always bloody all the time and things like that. So I I don't know if you have any more insight into that being the bigger wrestling fan. Like I'm, I'm a, I'd say an above casual wrestling fan but i'm not i'm not really deep into the minutia of the history of characters so i was just curious if you had any insight it's it's funny that you mentioned that uh, i don't know of any correlation between the two i think it might be a little bit of a stretch i'm not sure i see there being a, a correlation but i mean i could be totally wrong about that it kind of strikes me that there aren't more sort of like evil looking wrestlers like we have undertaker and vader and guys like that in the past and stuff but like for the most part you know you would think that there'd be a guy modeling himself after jason Voorhees or something possibly but the difference between one of the major differences between mankind as a wrestling character and leatherface is that mankind is insane He's certifiably crazy. Whereas, well, aren't aren't these guys all crazy? I, well, they they are, <laughs> but I think Leatherface is a little more innocent than that. I think he's he's more like Master Blaster. He's he's mentally challenged. You know, he doesn't realize the um, you know the the horror of what he's doing. Because <laughs> when you, when you see him in in these moments of vulnerability, he's kind of like a small child. Whereas I think Mankind is at least aware of the pain he's inflicting on his opponents. Mankind seems to understand right from wrong and not care, whereas Leatherface truly doesn't. Right. I I think he looks at a human being and a cow in the very same way. (laughs) That's so true. I mean, that's one thing that's kind of lacking from this one is the whole sort of, um, I mean, they get to it, but they don't really foreshadow as much as the first two, the, the human barbecue yes, sort of cannibalistic aspect underlying theme of all these movies. Right. Which I like introduced early as a concept because to me that's just horrifying in general. So the, you know, so just to always have that underneath being like, oh, they're chasing them because they want to eat them. Right. But well, I, you know, that's, that's, they definitely, um, I can't, I can't argue that point, but it does seem that Leatherface Part Three is is the first time where the victims are not sort of threatening the Sawyer's way of life. Like the victims in the first two, on some level, are threats to their their whole way of life. Whereas in Part Three, it seems they are going out of their way to hunt and stalk their prey, which is an interesting change for the Sawyer family, where they're more on the offensive than than defensive. So what I like about that is it reminds me of the most dangerous game. Yes. If you're aware, you know, which is also 
kind of just Predator. Right. It's like a remake of that right. <laughs> movie. But just the, I like that idea now that it's not just about trespassing. It's about hunting man. Like that just takes it up to a whole other level because, you know, there's big game hunters that then eat their food, right? Like you hunt an animal and you eat it. Sure. So there's some kind of logical step there. And I felt like that worked for me. It sort of livened it up in that middle half there that we'll get to where I was like, why aren't they at the house yet? Oh, okay, we're, we're playing the most dangerous game for a while. And I was cool with that. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it works uh, to some degree. At the end of the day, it does seem a little bit weird that the Sawyers would go out of their way to risk drawing more attention to themselves. You know what I mean? Because they're, they're so reclusive. And why would you go looking for trouble rather than taking advantage of something that comes to you? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and in the previous two movies, and a little bit in this one, I feel like their modus operandi is to just sort of lure you in. Like, um, they'll have an interaction with you early on, and it will sort of seem maybe like nothing, you know, like at the gas station or something, or picking up a hitchhiker. But down the line, it'll come to be like, oh, that was, they were sort of marking their food, and they're just going to kind of come get it later or something. (laughs) They're branding their cattle in a way. Sure. Yeah, and I definitely like the setup. That's one of the things that makes this whole concept work a little better for me is that they do sort of get familiar with these travelers before, you know, going balls to the wall on them. Yeah, that's what number two kind of lacks. It's like they, they play the tape. There's like that altercation with the um, with the yuppies on the road and everything. And then they come for stretch at the uh, studio. Right. So it's way more of like, it feels more like exposition. I mean, it's cool and everything because you're getting introduced to Chop Top and all that kind of, and he's a maniac and stuff. But like, there isn't a whole lot of like, um, I, I kind of like the slower burn of the first and the third one in that way. Yes. Yeah, I can get down with that. Have you seen this trailer by any chance? Yes. I didn't get a chance to rewatch it recently, but I have seen it, and I do think it's pretty awesome. I think it's possibly one of my five favorite trailers ever. Really? I mean, it's so perfect and simple, and it's like it's basically Leatherface standing in front of a lake, and then the lady of the lake from like King Arthur legend throws him a chainsaw from the water. He grabs it and lightning strikes it. He turns around and he just starts sawing at the screen. It's just perfect to me. Some tales are told, then soon forgotten. But a legend is forever. Leatherface. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Now, from the producers of A Nightmare on Elm Street, the real terror begins. I saw that as a kid in front of a bunch of VHS tapes and was just, like, mesmerized by it. Yeah, as a trailer, it's got everything I could want, you know, as like, or as a teaser, rather, you know, because it's only, a, you know, maybe 30 seconds long. And it's got a sense of humor. You know, first of all, by having that King Arthur sort of reference there. And, you know, you get you get to see the new Leatherface revving the chainsaw and then boom, there's the title. You know, like it kind of gets me really primed for the, the next installment of this franchise. It almost like sabotages itself, though, because like it's not going to deliver this at all. Like that's just footage shot for a trailer. That's not going to be in a movie. I think like a year later, they did the same thing for Terminator 2, where they shot a trailer of the robot being combined at the factory and wakes up and it's Arnold. That footage wasn't in the movie. 
Like, that's just shot for the trailer. Pretty cool, though. It almost see, seems weird that they would cut a trailer like that for what this movie ended up being. You know what I mean? In hindsight, it's a little bit backwards. They had really high expectations. The horror market at the time was still big. I mean, this was 1990, so I guess like there was a, there's a bit of a hump to get over between the 80s and the 90s. But for the most part, there was a market for this kind of thing. I just think the MPAA had a grudge against the franchise in general and really this movie just got cut to pieces like shredded yeah so that when it was finally released it is just it could barely be called like a a gore film or a horror movie at all its rep suffered dramatically just from behind the scenes sort of interference mm-hmm. okay so it's about that time let's start the movie discussion sure directed by jeff burr are you familiar with any of his work by any chance I don't think so. You might be, and you might not know it. Have you seen Stepfather 2, Pumpkinhead 2, Puppet Master 4 or 5? This is like go-to horror sequel guy. Okay, yeah, I've seen all of the Puppet Master films. So, you know, I've seen parts 4 and 5. And that those are not my favorite entries into that franchise. But uh, I have not seen Pumpkinhead 2 or Stepfather 2. So yeah, I'm, I'm largely unfamiliar with Jeff Burr outside of this and the two Puppet Master films he's directed. And I couldn't tell you, you know, based on watching them that they were Jeff Burr films. You know what I mean? Yeah, I wasn't really aware of him before this but i had seen a few of those movies and it just when i looked them up it just made sense like he seemed like a great fit for this because it's just you know it's a horror sequel i was like okay like he kind of goes on to be the horror sequel guy that's kind of interesting what did he do like that's what made me look at this movie and say like okay what did he bring what did he try and do to revitalize this as a franchise and take it places that the previous movies either didn't go or like or he wanted to do differently I just thought it was an interesting perspective, seeing that he had worked on so many sequels down the line. Sure. And, and, but in, in hindsight, I think it's safe to say an auteur he was not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, he's no Toby Hooper, right? I mean... <laughs> no, no. I know last time we talked about Tommy Lee Wallace, you know, taking the reins from John Carpenter and making a film that, you know, for all intents and purposes, was almost indistinguishable from a film directed by John Carpenter. You know, he did a pretty solid job of keeping that continuity going. But... But yeah, Jeff Burr is no Tommy Lee Wallace. Unfortunately, for better or worse. Right. So the movie starts like, well, at least like the first three. I only rewatched the first three, but at least like the first three movies, it starts with a little scrolling prologue that is narrated. They all do. I think all, at least the, the original four all have a little crawl at the beginning. That's a nice little continuity. Yes. And they're all, they're all a little bit different, all appropriately vague. Uh, they're all pretty good. So I'm in uncharted territory here for the first time because there's no book for this movie. So there's no book club. (laughs) But there's a book to the reboot, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I have but didn't read because I plan on doing Texas Chainsaw 3D. So I'll read it for that. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to read the opening crawl (laughs) (laughs) because of my desire to read on the air. Um, And if it sounds crappy, I'll just cut in the actual dialogue from the movie. Sure. But here it is. On August 18th, 1973, Sally Hardesty, her invalid brother Franklin, and their friends fell afoul of a bizarre cannibalistic clan of serial predators. Miss Hardesty was the sole survivor of that night of terror. She died in a private healthcare facility in 1977. A single member of the murderous family lived to see the trial. The 
prosecution recorded his name as W.E. Sawyer. He died in the gas chamber in 1981. The jurors concluded that Leatherface, presumed to be an unapprehended killer, was in fact an alternate personality of Sawyer's, activated whenever he donned a crude mask made of human flesh. If there was no Leatherface in reality, then Sally Hardesty may at last rest in peace. If there actually was a Leatherface, he remains at large, and the so-called Texas Chainsaw Massacre was only the beginning. Beginning. Yeah, so it completely bypasses all the events of Texas Chainsaw 2. Especially when in Texas Chainsaw 2, starring Dennis Hopper, he finds the dead body of Franklin at one point. Right. There is a continuity between 1 and 2, but not between 2 and 3. It, it reminds me a little bit of the Freddy series, actually, because like 1 and 2 are sort of separate adventures for Freddy, and then 3 is a direct sequel to Part 1, with lots of the same characters coming back and really picking up on that storyline. So I wonder if it's like a New Line thing, but the idea here is we're sort of at a soft reboot situation. Yeah. It's like half reboot, half sequel. Right. Yeah, it definitely seems like New Line wanted to distance themselves from the first sequel and uh, really invoke the spirit of the original film, which, I mean, from a, a business perspective, is, is doesn't seem like the wrong way to go. You know, I think I could totally understand why they would want to do that. Yeah, I mean, they want to try and, you know, make this a franchise like they want it to have legs the way that Freddy and Jason and, and Halloween and all those do. And I only wonder if originally the source material was just too much, too grisly to, to be able to tone down for a general audience, because that movie is really like a cult classic for like a niche audience of horror buffs. It's regarded as a classic, but I just don't feel like everyone would enjoy that movie, you know, right. on an entertainment level. Right. It's more of like an endurance test at times. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the tone of, of horror really shifted from the 70s into the 80s. You know, horror became it became more fun. Uh, when you when you look at the two the first two films side by side, like again, the, the the tone is so dramatically different, and the first film is is not unlike a lot of other horror films that came out of the seventies. I mean, you referenced Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave. They all had these raw sort of documentary sort of feels, and then Part Two is is pure nineteen eighties horror, you know. And then I don't know what was going on in the nineties. <laughs> the nineties is its own thing for sure. So after the opening crawl, we have our main characters. So we have Michelle and Ryan, who I called Brian the whole movie, because uh, <laughs> I think my the audio mix on the DVD is pretty rough. Here's where I want to ask you a little bit about your road trip that you were on, because this movie starts with Michelle and Ryan on a little bit of a road trip. We'll, we'll get to their trip in a second, but any interesting sort of uh, adventures on your road trip across America? Um. So it was a it was a trip where I was helping a friend of mine help his aunt move from eastern Pennsylvania to Redmond, Oregon. So and we were driving a, a moving truck all along 80 through the heartland of America. And there was really, you know, nothing really lived up to my expectations in terms of just the culture of the places we passed through. Definitely, there's a lot of, you know, middle nowhere truck stops that exist out there. 80 is one of the least interesting routes across country because it's, it's really just, you know, the, the quickest way to get from one side to the other. It's mostly for shipping. So there's a lot of trucks. But I mean, the, the stops are, you know, few and far between. And I, I wish I had something exciting or interesting to tell you about some of these places. But I mean, it definitely, there's nothing out there. And the people out there are kind of, they, they seemed like people I could 
I know back home, you know, at least from central Pennsylvania. But the whole trip, I was kind of hoping to see some weird stuff. It was a little bit disappointing in that regard, though. So no hitchhikers, no sort of harbingers at the gas station. Not even any accents, no new accents to experience. Everyone kind of just seemed like people I see at home. It was, it was really strange. I think maybe if I took a southern route across country, you know, through Georgia, Mississippi, and Texas, and New Mexico, and, you know, I think that's where the real characters are going to be. But, uh, I mean, we, we were passing through Indiana and Iowa and Nebraska. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot out there but, but corn and fields. Well, children of the corn, so you're lucky you didn't run into any of them <laughs> up there. And uh, yeah, he who walks beyond the rows, check out Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest, was one of our very first Charlize Theron movies on Watch the Throne, where she is an extra that gets eaten by the corn monster. It's pretty great. I want to release that episode <laughs> on this feed one day. It was sort of the backdoor pilot to this. Isn't that movie set in, a, in an urban setting? Yeah, so the kid ends up taking like the corn seeds from the cornfield, and then he's adopted by parents in the city. And so there's like a um, there's like an empty lot behind their apartment building, and he plants the corn in like a warehouse. It's amazing. Go check out that episode, which is episode one of Watch the Throne. Joey and I had a blast because it was one of the few times we were able to review a horror movie over on like the main feed because like Cage and Keanu didn't really do that many horror things and. This was the this was like a true schlock fest, so that was a lot of fun. I should check it out. I really enjoy the first one, but that's the only one I've seen. I need that's a franchise I'm largely unfamiliar with, so I should probably um, dive into that. Yeah, if I recall, after part three, well, part three isn't great. Don't get me wrong by any means. It's just up, you know. It's just I love it. Oh well, well you're, you're talking to somebody who has watched all of the Puppet Master movies and all of the Leprechaun movies, so I feel like I could handle it. <laughs> Last year, I watched. All the Hellraiser movies and all the Phantasm movies. Oh, yep. And there's like something like 25 or 30 movies between those two franchises now because of how they've fallen into direct-to-video land. Right. But those those are actually a lot of... Um, there's actually some fun to be had inside. Adam Scott shows up in a later Hellraiser movie. Yep. I've, yeah, I've seen all of the Hellraisers as well, but I mean, I don't... Yeah, I guess those are really bad too. Um, <laughs> I think I, I think I have... I, I place the Hellraiser franchise in higher regard than uh, some of the others, but... Yeah, you're right. It is kind of terrible after, like, the second one. Well, that's why this is third time's a charm, because <laughs> I don't want to get that far into what happens. Sure. Three's the magic number. So you never hit an armadillo or any roadkill or anything? Have you ever hit roadkill in your entire life? If I did, I'm unaware of it. And we have a lot of squirrels in New Jersey. But, uh, yeah, if I've ever hit anything, I'm not aware of it. I have a friend who hit a deer once, and... That was pretty crazy. I wasn't in the car, but I the account of it was nuts. I, I, one time I swerved to miss a squirrel, yeah. and uh, I'm pretty sure I caught a piece of that squirrel by accident. Oh. I did not intend to. But the, you know, that's how it always goes. You swerve to miss. Uh, but if you, know, if you listen to El Rey in Planet Terror, he says you're supposed to just drive right through the cow or the deer. Or right. <laughs> but even he ends up swerving off the road. So, I mean, it's not easy. Yeah, yeah, it's it gets a little hairy on the mean streets of suburban New Jersey. <laughs> but they hit the armadillo, and that's my first cue where I was like, "Oh, that's a callback from the first movie." Yeah, I was gonna say, I think I think that particular call because I'm you know I'm always wary about referencing previous movies like that. 
you know, the rebooting. So they're trying to make this one seem more appealing. I, normally I would be, uh, I would frown on something like that, but I think it works well within the context of this film. Like I didn't even think of it, uh, think of it as being a callback to the original. So good on them. I think that works much better than when the guy takes their picture at the uh, gas station. Yes. Yeah. Because that's also a callback to the dude from the first movie who takes their picture. Right. But can you help me understand, after two or three viewings, I'm still not positive, what these kids are doing on the road? Uh, I don't think that's ever made clear. And, and remembering back, I can't tell if they're a couple or if they are siblings or, like, I don't know exactly what their relationship is. If it's, if it's established, it's, you know, it, it went in one ear and out the other. And I'm not entirely sure where they're headed. You know, I don't that 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 whole backstory is really just clear as mud. I don't know that it matters because I don't spend my time thinking, all right, well, you know, where are they headed? It doesn't matter. All we know is that they're driving through Texas and then they run afoul of the Sawyers. So but yeah, I don't think it's ever explicitly said. So I got like one or two different sort of situations here. I thought she told someone that they were delivering this car for her father, like they were driving the car together cross country to drop off at her dad's house or something. And that's why it's such a nice car. Oh, yep. I think that's right. But then I also heard that when they get there, they're going to break up like they are a couple. And this is sort of like they're doing this together. It's like their last activity. And then they're going to break up afterwards or they're trying to decide if they can still stand each other. So they're doing a road trip together. Like that's the part I'm very hazy on, whether they're an actual couple or if it's sibling rivalry or anything. It's hazy. Yeah, it's it's really not totally clear. But again, I don't think it matters all that much. I think it's more of a, of, a, of a testament to how kind of uninteresting these characters are. I don't find them to be particularly great characters. No, but by the end, I end up on Michelle's side for sure. I like the Michelle character. Uh, I think she's definitely tougher than the Ryan character. Like the Ryan guy is just like a whiny little like ass most of the movie. Yes. And she's like actually trying to fight for her life. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So I was just, you're right. It really doesn't matter. All we need is what we're seeing. You know, they're just two very clean cut, well-to-do kids driving through Texas. Right. Okay. So they're driving and then what happens? Oh, they come across like a crime scene, right? Yeah. They're sort of like pushed through, you know, like, don't worry about what's going on. But the, the police have discovered like a pit full of human bodies, presumably like whatever was left from the Sawyer family, you know, after whatever they did with them. <laughs> they just dumped them into a, a hole in the ground and that was discovered. So so that was pretty interesting that just how they talk about when you leave that many bodies together, they sort of like become putrid and turn into like their own gross, like new substance thing. And it's just like body muck. Right. Ugh, I didn't know about that. That that was very gross. Oh, I love the guy pulling like the, the head off by accident. Yeah. <laughs> It almost looked like that was the cellar of a ho- of like the foundation of a- another house or something. So I was like, maybe that's like maybe they filled up that basement and moved on to another house or something. The Sawyers, right? Well, the house in this movie is is de- very different from the original house. So it's, I mean, that's that's a possible explanation. They never really tell you what what this pit of bodies is, but it's presu- you know you assume that it had something to do with the Sawyers, obviously. 
but yeah, I don't know why it's there or any more about it. It's good because it's foreboding and uh, it just sets up like this is a dangerous, this could be like an extremely dangerous area. Lots of people have gone missing around here. Like that's pretty much what I picked up for. They're just trying to sort of show these kids a possible future. Like this is what could happen to them. Well, they're never really told what is going on, right? The cop just sort of like they they're like, what's what's happening? And then he just says, you know, just keep driving and don't stop for anybody or, you know, so if they were to know what was going on, they might have been a little more cautious. But instead, you know, they they don't know. So they, they to them, it's not a red flag. And they end up stopping for gas. Yeah, I love that, too, that like now just as the audience, we're in on it and they're not. So we're a step ahead. OK, so gas station time. This is a pretty huge moment in cinema history, if you ask me, because we are introduced to none other than Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. Okay, so I had not seen this movie. This is actually the first time I saw part three. I'd, I'd gone like my entire life seeing one, two, and four. But for this show is actually the first time I sat down and watched part three several times because of like the two different cuts and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And for Vigo Mortensen. I had heard he was in it, but I didn't realize he was, like, in it. Like, I thought he was just sort of, like, an extra or a cop or something like that. But he is, like, one of the main Sawyer family members here. Yeah, and he's great in this. I think of all the of all the actors in this movie, he's probably my favorite. I managed to watch a little behind-the-scenes things, and they said that he was just game for anything. Like, and you can tell, like, he's up for whatever. Later on, his character's going to get lit on fire yep. in, in that great fight. But you could tell, like, they lit his leg on fire for a shot, right? Like, to see it creeping up his leg. Right. Yeah, I was really happy he was here. He definitely sort of... I don't want to say he keeps it afloat, because by the time we get to the house, it's what I really like about the, this franchise, like all the, the time we spend in the house with the family. Mm-hmm. But but he definitely elevates this and keeps it you know, adrift longer than it definitely should. If he wasn't in this movie, I don't know that I, it would be as successful for me. Right. It's definitely something that works better now that the movie has aged. You know, in 1990, Viggo Mortensen wasn't anybody. So, so yeah. So now in 2018, we can watch it. And if for no other reason, we, we can watch Viggo just be absolutely crazy in this movie. And um, you're right. It, if, if not for him, I don't know that there would really be as much incentive to, to keep revisiting this one. Maybe Ken Foray, which we'll get to very soon. Yeah, I, I, I can get on board with that. So here's something crazy about Vigo being in this, this being a New Line Cinema movie. They approached Peter Jackson to direct this first. One of the producers always threw his hat into the ring, was like, I like this guy, Peter Jackson. I really think like we should be working with him, this and that. I'm not sure if he passed or if the studio passed on him, but it's just kind of cool how Peter Jackson and Vigo Mortensen could have made this movie together all those years before Lord of the Rings. I would love to see Peter Jackson's version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. At the time, he had made uh, Dead Alive, or, or Brain Dead, as it's known internationally. And, and I, I absolutely love that movie. But it's not a commercially marketable film by any means whatsoever. I, I could see why his name would come up having after he, he directed that. I, yeah, I would love to know what his movie could have been. We were prepping it without a director. We had a designer, a cameraman, and we were all kind of working blindly. The studio was desperately trying to find the right person to direct this show. I think who they really wanted to direct the movie, even then, which showed good taste on their part, was uh, Peter Jackson. 
I'd put him up for Nightmare on Elm Street, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and ultimately it took all these years to affiliate on Lord of the Rings. But it ultimately came down to a short list of two or three filmmakers, of which Jeff was one. I want to see, I wish he would do something more on the, in the horror genre now, you know, now that he's sort of aged and gone through his battles through Middle Earth and all that kind of thing, because that is, those are his roots. I do remember seeing Dead Alive uh, in high school, and th that movie really is intense as well and, and pushes things, so, yeah. Oh, and he had made, he had made The Frighteners as well. I, I always forget about The Frighteners, uh, which is a very different movie. Yeah, that's like more of like a kid-friendly horror romp, sort of in the vein of like a Ghostbusters. Yeah. But still, yes, it, I'd love to see Peter Jackson come back to this genre one day. Yeah, for sure. And this is at the gas station. We also get that one eye, the guy with the one eye taking their picture. And they're sort of setting up. You don't know it now, but Vigo Mortensen and this one-eyed guy, they, they do know each other. Although they're not going to share another. It's weird what happens later on. Like this guy just ends up dumping dead bodies in the swamp on his own and encountering Ken Foray. But here he's like harassing them at the gas station and Vigo's trying to get a ride home from them. Right. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure how much planning went into this moment, but it seems like whenever they meet at the gas station, it's like their um, standard operating procedure is to pretend to be unfamiliar with each other. It's the only way that that to explain how this whole scene plays out. Right, right. This seems to be the uh, like the script that they always follow. Right, right. You show up and play the nice guy, and then I'll just run the store and be the maniac. And uh, if you get them to take you home great because that's the easy way but if not then we'll do a little most dangerous game action with them tonight and uh hunt them down sure yeah i think it does a good job of setting up sort of like the craziness because that guy it, it really comes to like a frantic end at the gas station where he runs out with the shotgun and starts shooting at the car and really freaking out the kids and stuff so it's it's one of the better sort of harbinger moments in these types of movies for me mm-hmm yeah, I don't know how, like, again, I don't know how much sense it makes when you step back and look at it, but in the moment, it's really compelling, and I think it works pretty well. So this is coming up, one of the scarier moments for me. They get a flat tire in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. A, can you change a tire? B, have you ever had to change a tire in the middle of the night? Yes, I can change a tire, and I've never had to do it in the middle of the night on the side of the road like that, fortunately. Because that to me was like, oh man, I'd be, I'd be so dead. Like they would catch me because I'm, I can change a tire, but I would not trust myself in the middle of the night to attempt that whatsoever. And especially if I knew that there was some sort of monster truck freak after me. <laughs> sure. And how awesome was that truck? Like, it's like they turned a truck into a Leatherface truck. It reminded me of Duel. I loved it. Yes. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, this director, he's going to be throwing homages throughout this whole movie, hopefully. Yep. And I love them chucking the, the coyote onto the hood of the car. It's just so strange. And I don't know if you noticed this, but did you notice that the coyote and the uh, armadillo from the beginning of the film both had pierced ears? No, I, did, I missed that. They had interesting jewelry in one of their ears. And then later... I noticed that Tinker, who has that sort of hook claw hand, he's got a, the same kind of jewelry in his left ear. So I think, I think we're meant to believe that he's just out in the wild just piercing animal ears and then, <laughs> you know, just letting them go. Or maybe those are sort of traps that he set up. Or, or maybe, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's just a weird bit. But he's still out there piercing ears of these armadillos. That's, <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's crazy. 
you should rewatch it and then like just watch those scenes and pay attention to the ears of the coyote and the armadillo. I don't think it means anything at all. I think it's just some weird peripheral stuff, but it made me laugh. When it when it like throws the roadkill on their car, they they stop and get out, and that's when we get Leatherface. Yep. For the first time, it's like twenty five minutes in. It's just he's got the squeaky leg brace. Yes. Then they turn around, and it's rah, it's like full on Leatherface. Right, and the the leg brace being a, a reference to the original film where he saws his own leg at one point. Oh. But there's nothing to reference him being jabbed in the gut with a giant chainsaw from part two. So again, they're still, they're still, they're choosing to continue winking at the original film and ignoring the second one. So yeah, I think the leg brace is for sure a reference to that. I thought it was maybe just like a straight up sort of retelling, and but now there there is more of these little continuity things if you want to look for them. Or Easter eggs. I guess these are just like early versions of that more than anything else because ultimately there is no connection and it's just it's just like a little nod mm-hmm. yeah so then leatherface just kind of chainsaws the car for a little while chops it up and and then they're off again they get their car going again but then they crash into ken foray yes which is another like the the sawyers seem to be responsible for every weird thing that happens to these people because in that moment they're driving down the road, Ken Foray's coming the opposite way, and then there's Vigo Mortensen who causes them to spin off the road. Ken Foray goes crashing into a ditch, and then he disappears. We don't see we don't see Vigo again for a while. Yeah, and a very strange couple of frames where he just sort of like ugh, like comes up in front of the camera, and he's like all bloody. Right. Yeah. It's it's a very awkward cut. <laughs> But at least it introduces us to Ken Foray into the rest of this movie, which, thank goodness. I, sa- I said before, you know, looking back, knowing that's Viggo Mortensen, like, it helps the film and stuff. But I feel like if this was 1990, watching this for the first time, and you and I were in theaters, and Ken Foray showed up, like, we would start cheering. That's true. Yeah, in 1990, Ken Foray would have been more prevalent in the minds of, of horror fanatics. We all know him, obviously, from, from Dawn of the Dead. So, yeah, I think maybe he was meant to be the, the star of this film for everybody aside from Leatherface but yeah which is awesome like I just love this guy's presence like you said Dawn of the Dead and stuff but but he's in just like tons of things and it's just funny to me that he is like the horror icon actor at that time right or like the one that would be recognized and the one that would be like yes that's why I'm I'm so glad they got him for this movie Uh, I'm a little bummed he's not introduced a little earlier like it would have been kind of cool maybe if he rescued them from the gas station but that's a main complaint I have about most movies is like I just wish things happened earlier yeah yeah but once he's on screen it's pretty great like he's a very nice guy like he's a very benevolent character like he's a nice guy he's not a threat and he establishes that instantly when when they like freak out you know because obviously like he's a big looking dude like you could mistake him for Leatherface without the chainsaw or something in the dark oh absolutely yeah he, he, he cuts a hard figure for sure. I don't know if you caught this, but did you hear what he was doing out there so late at night driving home? Did you hear what he was doing that weekend? No, I missed it. So it's a really quick line, and I don't even know what the exact line is, but basically he was at survival camp with his friends, and they were planning for the apocalypse. <laughs> So he was doing, like, nuclear annihilation test drills and things with his buddies up in the woods. That's amazing. So once I heard that, I was like, okay, this guy's a badass, too. He can handle himself. I know that he's going to have to go up against Leatherface at some point. So I was pretty excited. Mm -hmm. 
And then there's like a lot of shenanigans in the woods. We, I want to get to the house stuff. So let's sort of like coast over a couple of these incidents they have in the woods. I feel like we, sh- we should mention the, the girl that Ken Foree finds in the woods. Is that sort of in there somewhere? Because they come across what would be the survivor girl of another movie. Right. She's like she's very reminiscent of the girl from the original film who gets away, except this girl does not get away. But I just wanted to touch on her because I thought that was kind of another yet another wink to that original film. And then, of course, they she gets chainsawed right in the chest, I think, as if to say, like, forget about that first film. You know, like the girl's not going to survive this one. And then she's done. Well, that's so like that's the girl. She survives the opening credit sequence, basically. Whoever Leatherface is making that mask out of in the opening sequence was Mm -hmm. supposed to be her sister. Okay. And she's been out there for two days trying to escape. Right. And Ken Foray eventually runs into her. And, yeah, she gets chainsawed in half. And that was one of the main scenes that was cut for the MPAA as well, where originally that goes on for much longer. She gets, like, chopped in half and all kinds of like blood spray everywhere uh, and most of that is cut out but that is interesting that almost feels like you're right like that could be the girl who survived the first movie if she never got in the pickup truck right and there's a few other things that that are cool that happened like but there's also just some like it's also kind of slow going during this whole chase through the woods one, one moment that's great though is that ken foray fights leatherface for the first time Yep, yep, he sure does, and he lives to talk about it. <laughs> he only loses because when he gets Leatherface down, Leatherface has that tiny mini buzzsaw that he pulls from his pocket. Yes. How great was that? <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous thing to me to see Leatherface keeping one of those in his pocket. I, I mean, like, it, it's a little funny because of the way it looks. Like, it's, it's such a tiny little saw, but, you know, he's a chainsaw guy. So, like, I just love this idea that he's going to, like, you know, slip it out of his boot like a uh, like a razor blade or something like that. Yeah, it's it's a funny moment, I think. But it's a little bit ridiculous. It's a little silly. I mean, the sillier moment is the guy with the road flares, right? Like, that makes no sense whatsoever. Like, the whole thing where um, Claw Hand is out there laying down road flares oh, and Ken yeah. Foray's like, we need help. But then he's eventually, like, trying to make his gun work and everything. I was like, ah, that was a little confusing. Not Brian. Ryan gets it after he runs right through a bear trap mm-hmm. and squeals like a little pig. Like, I thought that was hilarious. Like, the kid, he's so good at being a victim, like one of those 90s horror yes. movie victims. Yeah, and he's such an asshole up to that point that it's kind of uh, gratifying to see him reduced to that just squealing victim. And I love how the girl just kind of looks at him and he, and he's like, go, go, don't save me. And she's like, okay. Okay. And just, <laughs> just takes off. Yeah, and he takes quite a few hits to the head and still is, I think, somehow alive later in the movie. It sounds like Leatherface chops him up, but they drag him back into the kitchen and he's still alive in a little bit. Yeah. So in the behind the scenes that I watched, just like a little bit, this actor has been killed by Leatherface, Freddy, and Jason. Oh, that's awesome. He never was in a Halloween movie, but uh, he's like, yeah, I just got that kind of attitude (laughs) you know it's like i'm perfect for screaming my head off and running from from monsters (laughs) oh man i I have to imagine like that's something every horror fan would dream of you know to go around the horn and show up in different movies and get killed by all these guys that'd be amazing i'm I'm, I'm a little bit sad for him that he didn't get to be killed by michael myers as well Well, there's still time there is still time that franchise is coming back with a vengeance and it just reminded me when um 
rest in peace Bill Paxton passed, and people were always talking about how he was killed by an alien, a predator, and a terminator. Right. And I was like, oh, like he had the trifecta. Mm-hmm. Um, reminded me of this kid. Yeah, so, okay, so this brings us all to the house. Finally, my favorite part of like all the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. I mean, this, the second half or the third act, for the most part, is, you know, the fun house. You know, that's what it reminds me of, like the haunted house, the fun house at the uh, amusement park with all the different crazy themed rooms and stuff that you have to go through. And right. How do you feel about the, I mean, we only really get to see the kitchen here, but let's talk a little bit about the Sawyer family now that they're all coming out for dinner. Yep. Where does this clan rank for you? Uh, this is the first time we're going to get some women, and, and a, we're going to get grandma and the little girl. Right. So that's nice to see that we got you know some more representation. But what about the rest of them? How do, how do you feel they all sort of jive together? Um, I, I think that introducing more women into the Sawyer family is definitely a good move. I don't know how memorable these characters are, though. You know, they like the characters. The Sawyer family are um, so iconic from those first two films, and you can distinctly remember, you know, Chop Top in Part Two, and like these characters. Like I remember grandmother. I remember the little girl. You know, you remember them, but as three dimensional characters, I just don't think that they're that complex. You know, I just I don't think that they're that interesting. I think most of the fun is given to Viggo Mortensen and to. Uh, Tinker, whose actor name escapes me. But I think the men of the Sawyer family in this one are just given the better material to work with. Yeah, I agree. I feel like we could have been fine with just Viggo Mortensen. Like, we didn't really need the Tinker character so much. Like, I feel like they're playing close to the same role here in a lot of ways. It, it just feels like two sides to the same character to me, that they that they either could have scrubbed one of them or made one of them younger. They just feel a little too similar. Maybe that's why they gave one of them a claw hand. Sure, sure. I like the concept of the little girl. I don't really know if it plays right. Like, they end up having her kill Ryan, right? Like, she's the one that's like, that's not how you do it. This is how you kill him. And she, like, pulls the string to release the hammer to do, like, the final killing blow on him. Right. Like, that's risky, you know? Like, that's that feels like pushing it for, like, a horror franchise at this time. Like, that feels like a, a direction where they're like, oh, man, like, this is, we're really going too far, maybe. Nowadays, it's nothing, you know? But I'm just trying to think of 1990. Right. I can't even remember the, like... Any other creepy children movie? Like in Children of the Corn, I don't recall them doing anything quite so grisly as that. I mean, there definitely have been plenty of evil children in horror films, but that just the act of pulling the switch and then the the hammer comes down and, and kills Ryan, you know, like that's pretty grisly for a child. Yeah. I mean, she's straight out of the bad seed is yeah. what it is. But the other thing is like at this time we were getting stuff like Chucky. So if you wanted to have a child killer, it had to be like a doll. A doll. Yep. Yeah, the, it just horror never really steered, and I felt like it never really wanted to play with kids, you know? Sure. So that, to me, was like a real interesting move was for them to say, like, yeah, let's bring in a, an actor who, like, can't even go see this movie. Right. She, she's going to be in it, but she won't be able to see it for, like, 15 years or something. Sure. Yeah, I mean, giving her that active role in the horror that was taking place was, was definitely right. Because you look at the other kids, like Danny from The Shining, he's very passive in that movie, the way they shot it. You know, he's not committing any horrible acts in that film. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think it's pretty, pretty over the top. 
I wonder if it had anything to do with like Poltergeist because I, I get a Carol Ann vibe from her. Yeah, I could see that because she's kind she's kind of sweet. Yeah, and in that movie, not the first one, but I believe maybe in the second or third, there's like a few moments where Carol Ann is like evil or something. So like maybe they wanted to try and bring back that bad seed thing. Be like, no, for a long time, the kid was sort of like the victim. But like, what if like a more horrible kind of thing would be like, what if the kid is responsible? I also kind of like Mama, not immediately, but like I like what they're trying with her. They're trying to give her a couple things like the Vox box and the wheelchair, and she's clearly the head of the family. Yeah, I, I like a lot of this in concept. But again, I think I, don't, I just don't think she gets enough to do. I think the the Vox box, while it's a um, nice touch, it sort of limits her as a character because you think about from the first two. The sort of not not grandpa, but the the patriarch of the family. You know, the old man. He's he's chewing up scenery in both of those movies. You know, he's he gets so much. He gets to have so much fun. Whereas Mom is much more serious. She's not really that goofy. She's a little more you know straightforward, menacing, and I think that's less fun for an actor to play. I, I definitely hear that. Maybe that I was kind of missing that this time. Everything in the kitchen seemed super serious, where in the other movies, like only the victim was really acting crazy and appropriate, while the rest of them were like happy, were enjoying themselves and having a good time, right? Like that's what it was all about for them to sort of like play with their food before right. they eat her and stuff. And, and in this one, it just seems like uh, we're doing a cooking show. Like, <laughs> it feels much more like we're following rules, regulations of the house and there's much more of a structure and, and it doesn't seem like they're necessarily not not enjoying themselves, but like having a hell of a time per se. Right. I miss a little bit of that like mania. Yes, you get a little bit of it with, with Tinker and, and Tex and uh, them yelling at, at Junior, but it's not anywhere near as fun as, as some of the previous installments. And Grandpa's back. I think he's been there all three movies. Yep. He's more of sort of a spirit Halloween display this time, as opposed <laughs> to, like, really doing anything. Yeah, I'm not even convinced that he's alive anymore. He looks dead. They say he's 137 in the in the part two, but he's still moving around. I think in this one, he's just straight up corpse, and they're just keeping him around because cause it's Grandpa. In the first two, there's those great, some of the funniest moments are at the peak of insanity when Grandpa's trying to use the hammer on the mm -hmm. victim and, mm -hmm. like, smash the head in but just can't hold it but in this one they nail her to the chair which i like i love that as a, as just a little detail because it's new it looks pretty good like it looks painful as opposed to strapping her to the chair just nailing her hands down it's just, it just gives me gives me goosebumps but yeah that's one detail in that scene i really enjoy in the unrated cut when they take care of the boyfriend it's actually, for the most part, like, I'm pretty impressed when they take the hammer to his head and they, the way it looks and all that. I mean, it's all totally cut out of the R-rated version. I was wondering, because I didn't get a chance to watch the theatrical cut. I only watched the unrated version for this because I figured the extra few minutes that were added uh, it w wouldn't really matter. But So they, they cut that whole bit out. That's interesting. They, they cut around it. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you could feel it, too. I remember watching the theatrical cut going like, wait, what? Like, it's so jarring because eventually they were just taking frames here and there. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? They're just like, cut this frame, cut that frame. And so they're very abrupt, very obvious sort of cut arounds just to, yeah, the scene is like barely intact. Oh, that's that's disappointing. See, because the, the original film is, is virtually bloodless, but it works 
because, you know, I mean, it was bloodless by design. I think Toby Hooper really depended on suggestion, whereas this movie is not intentionally suggesting it's we couldn't include this. So now we have to fix it in post and fixing in post never works out well. So I think if, if they had originally planned to, to do a lot of it, to suggest a lot of the violence in it, it would have felt better. But, you know, it, it's very clear that they were chopping this up because they, they had to, you know, fix it later to, to appease the MPA. That's disappointing. Yeah, and that's exactly right because the idea behind New Line, the idea was to to push it. Was right. We we got this extreme franchise. Like, let's keep it alive. Like, let's bring it back to that first movie. And maybe they just misinterpreted like the design of the horror because mm-hmm. like there's you're right. There's not a lot of bloodshed in that first movie, but there is still a lot of very macabre imagery and a lot of disturbing imagery in those movies so much so that it still has that r rating without the extreme gore the second movie is a gore fest like no ifs ands or buts right like it is just wall to wall uh red Uh, and here it seems like they wanted to implant the aesthetics of part two onto the backbone of part one Mm mm-hmm but it just didn't really jive correctly. I I think there's just something about the age of this being the 90s and wanting to shock and splatter the screen, and then just the nature of the actual story itself that doesn't always require that. You know, like, there are ways to to cut around that if you're designing it that way. And it's baffling to me, in hindsight, that this film was required to be so heavily edited. I'm looking, I'm thinking back, you know, Hellraiser came out, There had been several Nightmare on Elm Street films at this point, and all of those have far more graphic violence than this movie does in its unrated form. You know what I mean? There's nothing so horrifying in this, this version of the film, like, that I feel justifies having to cut it down. It's insane to me. I mean, I always say, fuck the MPAA. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem, though, they because the truth is, the, tr- the fact of the matter is, they hold a grudge. Like, Texas Chainsaw 2 had the option to either be unrated or X or whatever, and Cannon said, don't put a rating on it. And it went out there into the world, and it, you know, and that pissed off the MPAA. And so the next time they saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the list, I'm sure they were giving it a really hard fucking time. That's just politics, unfortunately, in Hollywood, and, you know, things like that still happen to this day and it's very frustrating because you would think we're making a movie called texas chainsaw massacre you're making us remove the massacre right (laughs) yeah and there's already very little substance substance to this film that the only way it could really work i think is if there was some hardcore violence in it and that's really it's to the detriment of the film that they didn't have more interesting characters they didn't have a juicier plot if they had started with a really good script i could see that taking all the violence out of it could it could still work but i just don't think there's enough meat there for it to hold up entirely you know in such a neutered form. It's unfortunate because you're right, it does lean so heavily on the violence entertainment aspect because there are no strong characters here. Like, it would be great if we had more of a backstory for Ken Foray, if we saw him up at his survivalist mission camp, like, with his buddies for a little while, like, getting busy. Or if these two kids were a little more explained a little better. You know, that's that's the thing. It's like, it's it's really not concerned with, with characters. It just, it's more concerned with being a fun house. It wants you to just have that horror violence experience and and it should like that is exactly the type of movie this is supposed to be yeah we're almost at the end here but what i loved one of the best moments in this movie is when leatherface gets his new chainsaw yes 
this is the one reference to part two that I could find in the film. In the second one, the, there's that line, the saw is family. And then here they are presenting Leatherface with a brand new saw. But literally, it's, it's from the, the DVD cover. I believe it was the poster as well. It says, it's engraved to say the saw is family along the blade of it. The thing I like most about Leatherface is his childlike impulses. And the fact that he would, it's for him getting this giant shiny chainsaw. It's like Christmas morning and he's so giddy, he can't wait to use it. I think that it's a great moment. It, like it, it sort of rescues that sequence a little bit. Because like now, finally, here's the chainsaw. This like we're gonna have some some mayhem coming, and so I I actually like that moment quite a bit. Yeah, me too. It, it was starting to get a little monotonous, right? And, yeah. And we needed to introduce something cool here to really break it up. I mean, it's huge. It's like twice the size of his last chainsaw. It's got it's gold, right? It's got like all this gold plating on it. I mean, where the hell <laughs> do you think Tex engraved that himself? Like out in the in the barn? Like it's just it blows my mind that uh, that they could even afford this thing. <laughs> there it is. It's awesome. Yeah, no, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But, you know, it, it works for me. I guess what I wanted was for Leatherface to sort of wander out to the pond in the back of the by the farm and have the Lady of the Lake throw him his new chainsaw out of the water towards him. <laughs> but I'll take this. I think that would have been a little bit tonally inconsistent. This this at least fits in within the movie it, it is. W- would you be down for a Texas Chainsaw Massacre that took place in medieval times? Like the origins of the Sawyer family? Like they go back, all the way back to medieval times? We'll do King Arthur, but it's like King Sawyer or the Sawyer <laughs> servants of that, you know? And then, yeah, that's where the chainsaw actually can come out of the water or the, the sword. And it could be the chainsaw in the stone instead of the sword in the stone. That, that's getting a little bit Army of Darkness. Yeah, we're going to get there. I'll, I'll have that. I can't wait to talk about Army of Darkness. Yeah. So I guess the the only thing about this is that we don't really get to see him use that chainsaw yet because uh, Ken Foray's back from the swamp. Yep. He encountered the dude from the gas station out in the swamp who was dumping dead bodies, and I guess Ken Foray just like kills that guy. Yeah, and he, I think dumps him right in the swamp too, doesn't he? They get into like a very small fight, and it's all very unremarkable. Yeah. You know, the, the like all of the Ken Foray stuff minus the uh, his like final assault on the Sawyer house. There's so much potential there, and I don't think it even comes close to realizing that's its potential. If it had been more most dangerous gamey, or like if it had been like Predator, where even if the if the girl is being held captive within the house, it would have been great to cut back and forth to Ken Forey, kind of like hunting through the jungle, you know, or the 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 woods outside the surrounding, you know, surrounding the house. Like if he had been given more to do to, to really utilize the, the survival training that he's, he talked about, like that would have been awesome. And maybe that would have required a bigger Sawyer family, like maybe some red shirts for him to just take out, you know, so that he, so it's not like he's hasn't been doing anything the whole time. It kind of feels like he's kind of out there doing nothing until he takes out what's his face from the gas station. You know, like that's the only thing he gets to do. I feel like if he was busier just hunting Sawyer members, like that would have been awesome. But as it is, you know, it's just, there's, there's nothing there. And it's like, oh, right. Ken Forey, he's back. Like it would have been great if he, like by the time he gets to the house, he's been through shit, you know, like, and now here he is just like, fuck all this. And, you know, just taking everybody else out, you know, just, but he, he's, he's not nearly as worn out as he should be by that point. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. Like, I think it's cool that he comes back. Like, what's what's his motivation to stick around? Why wouldn't he just take off? Does he feel that responsible for the girl? Or if he had to kill a bunch of Sawyer family members, he'd at least have that grudge against the family, you know, and then he gets to save the girl at the end. But, like, I don't totally fully understand his motivation for sticking around other than just being a plain old good Samaritan. Yeah, it feels to me like once he finds out that they've sort of booby-trapped the woods and all that kind of stuff, like he just wants to teach them a lesson or something. Like it just seems like he's like, oh man, like I can't believe these guys are hunting me. Like I'm going <laughs> to kill them instead. Right. Like everything you say, I agree with, especially, you know, the idea that he's supposed to be like this crazy survivalist, like, you know, he's going to survive the the post-apocalypse. Like he better be able to take out the Sawyer family because there's going to be way more mutant freaks running around after the bombs drop. Right. Like, I, I even like that he's he went to like a survival camp and he's not like a Marine or a former Navy SEAL, you know, because we, we have predator we have rambo we have those characters already so the fact that he's kind of this amateurish survivalist like that's awesome but they just don't do anything with it it would have been funny i guess nowadays it would be cool because these guys have their own tv shows and stuff so like you could have him like filming his own show on the road and everything and then he <laughs> comes across this grisly scene and everything and he's like i'm gonna get like a pulitzer for this yeah yeah, they're, they're, that's some of the most unrealized potential in the whole movie, I think. It's just Ken Forey's just, he's coasting on being Ken Forey. He's not given really hardly anything to do until, until the final climactic battle. Before he comes back and shoots up the joint, the only one little moment I want to mention is when uh, Leatherface is alone in his room using the speaking spell. Yes. For this character, that's like the most depth and the most telling moment in this movie for him. It just, I wish we had, again, I just wish we had that moment a little earlier because after that, I feel like, okay, I understand this version of Leatherface a lot better than I feel like they're trying to represent him. Like, if they had represented him like this earlier, then I think it would have been a much stronger use of the character. Yeah, up to this point, they've pretty much reduced Leatherface to, you know, Jason Voorhees with a chainsaw. You know, like, he's not. He's not the vulnerable leather face that we've seen in the past. He's just this, you know, lumbering big dude with uh, a chain. You know, that's it. That he's, he's got no personality. But then we get this scene and now we get finally see the leather face that we're used to seeing. Someone who's, you know, got that childlike mentality, who has a vulnerability to him, who um, is pathetic in a lot of ways. So I really enjoy the speak and spell scene, even though it, does sort of feel gratuitous within the greater context of this film but it's like the one moment that redeemed Leatherface for me overall I'm so glad it was there it like gets in right under the wire too yeah oh yeah because there's not much left if they had to find some place to put it and I think it works kind of where where they placed it but I'm just happy it's there and then Ken Foray shows up and just shoots the shit out of the house, like, with no regard. Like, he has no idea where anyone's positioned. I feel like he's just shooting blind into the kitchen. <laughs> he takes out about two or three of them. I think he takes out Mama. I think he takes out Claw Hand, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And then he fights Vigo Mortensen. So you get Ken Foray versus Vigo. Yeah, and how fun is that? Like, Ken Foray goes up against the baddest people this movie has to offer and comes out of it you know, on the other side. Although they, they do kind of kill him at the end of that scene, you know, like it's, it's pretty clear that he has not survived, but then of course we can talk about it in a, in a minute, but yeah, he does come back for some reason, but yeah, he does get like a pretty awesome exit 
and then they sort of they, they pull it back. I mentioned a little earlier with the Vigo stuff, how he was game for everything. Yeah, they set him on fire. The actor isn't completely lit on fire. That's a stunt double. But there's clearly a shot of Vigo Mortensen with his leg on fire, and then they cut to the stunt double. But but I just love that. Um, I mean, just for me, visually, that's always been one of the most interesting visuals i feel like in movies and on tv is when i see a person running on fire there's just something so always so surreal about it and it's so disturbing but like so beautiful and i feel like it's something i'll never see in reality either Mm -hmm. is like a person running on fire uh, unless i'm like filming a movie or something so like i'm always anytime that shows up in a film i give it like so much more credit because i know how how hard and dangerous that shit is yeah yeah for sure i love i love that bit at the end and then we get Ken Foray and the Leatherface rematch. Right, which is uh, about as fun as it needed to be. I, th- I really enjoy watching him fight Leatherface and kick an ass, and I enjoy watching Ken Foray do that. I always love a rematch. Like, it makes me feel wrestling again. And just the way that Ken Foray is sort of, like, handling Leatherface here, it makes me feel like, oh, yeah, he remembers all of his moves, um, and, like, he sort of knows how to uh, handle this guy now. Right. And now for the confusing conclusion. How again does Leatherface, how was he dealt with? I'm, I, I'm having trouble remembering, too. It's not just you. I think they end up hitting him with a car, and the girl ends up, like, bashing his brain in with a rock or something? Or I don't think we ever really see what happens to him. So they just escape him. I mean, Ken Forey is left to fight Leatherface, and then Michelle gets away. Oh, yeah, the lake fight. That's right. Everyone drowns. Ken Foray drowns. Leatherface drowns. She cracks him over the head with a rock and runs away. And it's implied that Leatherface kills Ken Foray. Oh, yes, yes, you're right. Yeah, it's implied that Leatherface kills Ken Foray. And then she gets she gets to the main road, and then a truck pulls up, and, and um, Benny, Ken Foray, is, is in, the, in the truck, miraculously. Oh, that's right. So, okay, so this was definitely a tagged-on ending. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think it's ever really established how Leatherface is defeated. I don't. I think they just cut right ahead to her on the road, and then the truck shows up. Yeah, and it's also never said explicitly how Ken Foray survives. Right. There's some behind-the-scenes photos of him posing next to his dead dummy, mm-hmm. which are pretty funny. So it's like, yeah, the. He's, he's supposed to have sacrificed himself for the girl. I'm glad they didn't end it that way because, like you were saying earlier, he just there's no motivation for him to, to sacrifice himself entirely like that for a stranger. And I, I kind of also love the mess of the ending, like when an ending just gets so messy and you just don't know how to end it. You just kind of keep tagging things on. It's a very, I feel like it's sort of a, a very independent horror sort of problem from time to time. I have to believe it was some kind of studio note, like they needed a, a hopeful ending, and the only thing that made sense was to have Ken Forey show up like he miraculously survived, and then they, they drive off into the distance together as both survivors of this horrible experience. You know, like that's a, it's a nice button to end on. It just feels really shoehorned onto the end of this movie. I like where it ends, but it doesn't really earn it. Right. It sets up something really cool for what could come next, actually, these two characters. Right. You know, maybe driving around, making sure the Sawyers never leave their grounds or or just trying to contain the Chainsaw Massacres. Mm Mm-hmm. Cut to credits. Yep. (laughs) Actually, we cut to, I don't know if you picked up on this, did you hear what this 
ending closing credits song was? If I did, I didn't make note of it. I can't remember. So you're going to have to go go look this up online after we're done recording. So there's a band. It's called Laz Rocket. That's L-A with a dot over it, A with a dot over it, Z, Rocket. Mm-hmm. So the name of this song is Leatherface. Oh. And it's about Leatherface. Okay. Oh yeah. The nineties heavy metal soundtrack towards the end of this movie is is incredible. But I did not catch that that was um specifically a Leatherface song. I'll have to find it. Yeah, the music throughout this movie is pretty terrible. Like, the actual score is just very sort of, like, it almost feels like free music to a degree. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it almost just feels like library music laid under it for the most part. But then towards the end, it sounds like they hired Dave Mustaine to score, like, the last 35 minutes of this thing. Because during the fights, it's just electric heaven. <laughs> so out of place. It might have felt more appropriate in the previous movie, but in here, it just, it seems so awkward. Well, like, it just made me think that New Line is really trying to make him, like, a Freddy kind of character. Like, they gave him his own theme song, they named the movie after him, Leatherface. Like, they really want to put him front and center to be the face, the Leatherface of the franchise. Right. And I mean, even Will Smith had that Nightmare on My Street song about Freddy Krueger. So maybe New Line was like, hey, we got to work in some some rock into this. I can understand the thought process, but the execution of it just like none of this thing, none of this feels cohesive. It's all like there's a lot of fun in it, but it's so much of it is just it's like a hodgepodge of ideas that don't quite come together. And the music is definitely a big part of that. So on this show, Third Time's a Charm, we've had some pretty strong contenders for best song. We've got Eye of the Tiger from Rocky III. Mm-hmm. We got um, We Don't Need Another Hero from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And, and now we have Leatherface. <laughs> but like I mentioned earlier, No Book Club didn't make the episode any shorter, I noticed, but it was worth a try. That's okay. We got a little bit of music club. Exactly. And I would definitely be playing that song and dropping that in there. Uh, so everyone can hear a few bars of Leatherface. The Leatherface theme from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. I'll have to see if it's on Spotify and add it to my Halloween playlist. Oh, exactly. I want to know if like there are more obscure bands out there with more songs. about. Like, Is there a Pinhead song? Pinhead, don't open his box because <laughs> worlds of pleasure and pain are in store for you. I, I highly doubt it, but I, I would not be surprised to find out that somebody has written a song inspired by Leatherface. What could you do for Phantasm? You could be like, old man with the silver orb, <laughs> scaring me in all my dreams for the last 30 years. This is what happens when there's no book to read. All right, Dan of the Dead Cologne, thank you very much for joining me as we took a little trip through Texas tried out some chainsaws and got through this classic American horror series that is still going. Yeah, it sure is, for better or worse. And and I, I would like to say, just before we 
finish up that like I do enjoy this movie. There's a lot of good stuff in it, but I, I just if we're going to be talking about it and critiquing it, I think it definitely falls short of expectations. And you know, I think it's it's good to go into it with that kind of mindset that it's just it's not going to live up to expectations. But there's plenty of stuff to enjoy in this movie, especially if you want to see what a young, handsome Viggo Mortensen looks like yeah and i think there's a texas chainsaw massacre for everyone you know like there's enough of them and they're all sort of different enough that i feel like whatever level of horror fan you are like you could find one that suits you um i can't really speak to the the newer ones those platinum doom ones so much but i know with these original four at least these first three like there's definitely a lot of fun here and they they each offer something different and i probably rank them two one three but that's not to say, you know, that there isn't a lot of fun going on here. And yes, definitely adjust your expectations a little bit and understand that we're getting into much more of like a franchise state of mind behind the camera um, than those first two ones. But it's fun and it's worth a watch. And at like 80 minutes, I mean, how can you go wrong? Exactly. It's a quick one. All right. So I guess that'll do it for this episode of Third Time's a Charm. Thank you very much again, Dan of the Dead Cologne, for joining me. Thanks again for having me. Would you be willing to come back for Texas Chainsaw 3D in a couple months? Oh, absolutely. I have a copy that uh, I haven't watched it since that first time I watched it. I don't, I don't remember loving it, but there's a lot of stuff in it that I would love to talk about because it's a little bit of a head scratcher. But yeah, for sure. And I'm going to try and figure out a way to watch that in 3D if I can when the time rolls around. You're a better man than I am. <laughs> I said I'll try. I don't know if I'll make it through, but I'll give it a try. Well, I guess until next time. Don't talk back. <laughs> <laughs> For another super scary bonus October episode of Third Time's a Charm, I'd like to thank Dan of the Dead Cologne once again for stopping by to talk Leatherface. It's not the best, but it's not the worst by far. Back in 1990, I'm sure this was a huge disappointment to gorehounds and horror fans, but at least now we can enjoy the unrated cut and experience something closer to what the filmmakers intended. Hey, wait a second. The Sawyer family. S A W Y E R? Saw? Hmm. I wanted to mention the Ramon song Chainsaw during Record Club at the end, but I was so busy making up my own songs that it completely slipped my mind. Also, we mentioned The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, and if you want to read that story, you can find it for free online without looking too hard. Then, you could also find the complete 1932 film The Most Dangerous Game, directed by Irving Pinchel and Ernest B. Shodzak. That's online without looking too hard either. If that last name sounds familiar, it should, because Shotsack co-directed the 1933 all-time great King Kong, R.I.P. Monkey Club. Be sure to tune in Friday, October 19th for a special episode of Cinemakers, where Joey, Nick Jenkins, and myself discuss Turbo Kid and Summer of 84, both directed by the RKSS Collective. Then, grab your sleeping bag and at least leave your mom a note or something, because Brian's Slumber Party Movie of the Week is also Summer of 84. And Joey is also on that episode, so check those out. Also this month, check out the Hocus Pocus episodes of Wistful Thinking and The Contenders, and see how these shows differ, or not, when discussing that very festive Halloween movie. Be sure to visit cageclub.me, cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and wherever podcasts live. Third Time's a Charm is now on Spotify, so hear me there. 
write to me at three at cageclub.me. That's T-H-R-E-E at cageclub.me. Check out all the great seasonal content this month on the network, as well as all the extensive back catalogs of shows, all for free, all the time at cageclub.me. I'm your host, Mike, and remember, the Saw is family. That's the magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three may stub at me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean? Coming up next on Third Time's a Charm. Is this still the Greer's residence? The last thing she expected was a visit from Ivy's sister. She was my best friend. Her mother was their maid. The last thing he needed was a reminder of one mistake. It's been a long time. Things have changed. And the only thing she wanted... Who is it? Michael. I'm going to get married. ...was to even the score. I see we have a little unfinished business. And even though the game is the same... It wasn't Catherine, I couldn't get it. It was your mother. All the rules have changed. I'm not going to let you turn away from me like you did her. Poison Ivy, the new seduction... Don't be afraid to follow where it leads. I would die for you.